This week on The Futurists, Brett King and Rob Tursek. Ultimately, my concern is that the core mechanism here as to whether AI is going to replace humans in the workforce is how capitalism itself works. Mm-hmm. Is since the 1960s, the overriding economic driver has been increasing productivity. The ultimate tool to increase productivity is to remove humans from the labor force. Well, 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 welcome back, world travelers. Such a pleasure to see you again. Brett, I haven't seen you in weeks. Yeah, we haven't done a show together for a while. You know, Katie and I um, had that one with the NYU professors talking about AI regulation that we did. And, um, you know, I I ended up having Mark Buckley at my apartment in Bangkok, and we we did a live recording there. But you and I haven't done a show for a few weeks together. I mean, you have been on the road nonstop. We both travel a lot, but you win the prize because you have, where are you now? Like, tell me what place I'm in uh, uh, Kisinau in Moldova. So I just arrived. Yeah, I literally arrived uh, about an hour and a half ago, Um, came via Istanbul from Bangkok. I'd been in Bangkok for um, less than 48 hours from my trip previously, which was to Toronto for Cybos, where we did, uh, uh, you know, the Future of Money panel there. And then um, before that, the weekend before that, I was in Riyadh in Saudi. So, yeah, I've been all over the shop. You're bouncing around. You know, one of the things you notice when you travel around is um, when you finally do make it back to the United States, it feels like you're going back in time to the 1930s, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's the thing is, um, you know, having lived in New York as a New Yorker, but someone that travels all over, um, you know, the infrastructure in the U.S. might have been absolutely state of the art in the 1970s, but in an absolute free market, there's not incentive to upgrade all of that infrastructure because most of it's privatized, right? Whereas if you go to places like China, Mm -hmm. who are older, than the United States, um, you know, or even Thailand, where I am now, you've got massive infrastructure projects happening all all the time right now. You know, yeah. fast rail, improvement of the electricity grid, all of these things are happening. There's just not the political, um, you know, incentive in the sort of absolute free market economy that the US has. That's resulted in the fact that, you know, for many Americans, um, now the quality of life in terms of things like basic access to healthcare and education and so forth has deteriorated over time yeah compared with true. what's happening offshore yeah education standards are down our certainly our transportation infrastructure leaves a lot to be desired look uh, how many derailments there are annually a thousand a year for trains it's crazy number yeah it's true uh, no, in terms of rail, we really do look like a, an emerging market or a third world country. You know, um, since 20, 2011, China has ra- um, has put in place 38,000 kilometers of fast rail. Yeah. And we can't even get, you know, um, Los Angeles to San Francisco built in the same A big time. reason for that is our political system has uh, so many checks and balances that it's pretty easy for any one group or even any one politician to stop things in their tracks. And that was by design. Yeah. Right? So when they started the country on, in the 1700s, the concern was that the concentration of power. So they built a lot of veto power into each level of government. But the problem now is government's lost its ability to get anything done. Uh, people can stop a project. So these big infrastructure projects require community engagement. They require private sector to work with public sector and so on. It's very hard to build. And require consensus. Coalition. 
Yeah, that's a hard thing to achieve, at least in this country. And it doesn't help when you've got at least one political party that's you know not even dealing with full full deck of reality. Um, so I thought it'd be fun for us to catch up on the news since I haven't sp- spoken to you in quite some time. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, like what has happened in the last couple of months has been just extraordinary. Uh, I guess one of the news stories that we covered a while ago, uh, about six months ago, was this call for a pause in AI research. If you remember, well, actually, you remember it well, because you were one of the 2,000 people who signed. I, I did sign on. Letter. I yeah. mean, I, I expressed my reservations. In fact, I wrote an article about it, you might recall, mm-hmm. um, which said the pause, the AI pause is bullshit. <laughs> you signed it anyway. Yeah, but I signed it because, um, you know, it's the best thing that we had available right now to sort of think about regulation. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I I mean, obviously, um, you know, I've got concerns about AI moving ahead without, you know, ethical guardrails, without this sort of core regulation. Europe has had a shot at it. China has had a shot at it. But, um, you know, beyond Biden forming sort of a, a a regulatory think tank to sort of look at the potential of creating regulation. The U.S. is, uh, again, sort of looking really for the free market to define the alignment of AI to human society. And as we know... (laughs) <laughs> that, that that has some um, significant issues because you know, we wouldn't have climate change if if we didn't have that same mechanism in place in respect to fossil fuel usage. Well, it's very easy to to as you say to break the consensus, right? So our Congress is gridlocked to begin with. Uh, it's almost evenly split in both houses. And in addition, uh, nobody wins. There's no advocate for the future, right? There's nobody lobbying for the future, but there's plenty of people who are lobbying for the past. And yeah. they're well-funded. And so they can derail that kind of regulation however they wish. Now, let's talk about what's occurred in the last six months. So the letter went out uh, six months ago. Some people were derisive and they said it won't accomplish anything. Other people, like Gary Marcus, wrote a good piece today. He was one of the principal um, people behind that letter. Yeah. I, I, I'm, he felt it was I, effective. I, I, you know, he said, look, we're already having a regulation discussion, which we would, might not have had. Um, and Max Tugmark, who was kind of the orchestrator of the letter, uh, uh, MIT researcher in, in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, he also felt like it was productive. So in the last six months, here are some of the things that have happened. There's a lot. Um, we, we now have multimodal LLMs, right? So now you can communicate, you can talk to uh, in the chat GPT, uh, which really starts to present the interesting possibility of using it like an AI assistant on your phone. That's really new. Like that just came out now. Um, open source large language models have proliferated around the globe, meaning that innovation is happening everywhere and small teams can access those models. They don't have to spend a huge fortune on training them. Yeah. Um, there've been a flurry of lawsuits ever since we we've, we've been covering the topic on this show for a while, but there've been a flurry of lawsuits, principally uh, copyright infringement lawsuits filed here in the U S and elsewhere, uh, different governance in different jurisdictions around the world on that topic. There's been an outcry from creative professionals around the world because they're writing their work is the subject matter that the LLMs are trained right, on. Right, including the Hollywood writer's strike is the most notable. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Let's bookmark that because that's a whole other topic, the sure, labor sure. and the strikes and so on, because there's a lot of news there. Um, now, one thing did get paused. Uh, I was interested to read about this. Um, OpenAI did actually pause the work on training their latest large language model, which is GPT-5. Now, they say it has nothing to do with the letter. We'll see. I don't know about that. Um 
they say the, the rumor, actually, they haven't said this. The rumor is that they weren't getting the results they wanted and it was going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to train. And there's some questions about OpenAI's ability to keep burning hundreds of millions of dollars out of whack just to keep their model ahead of the rest of the pack. Yeah, uh, I don't think people positive. really understand how labor intensive training these LLMs is. You mm -hmm. know, the fact that you've just got to hire a lot of bodies to churn through a ton of data to feed into the engines. You know, it's a very, you know, it's not that that these LLMs go out and look at the internet and learn all of a sudden. You know, it's it's a much much more deliberate than that, especially if you want some sort of uh, ethical filtering to to the data. Yeah. So on that note, you know, OpenAI has been using uh, workers in Kenya who are paid two dollars an hour uh, to do human re reinforcement of the training. So we actually, there's like a whole human component to this. These are these are not self taught machines. These are they're tutored by human beings who aren't paid aren't paid very well. Um, now, Sam. Altman. Well, I think I think a lot of people. Um, before you continue with that, I think yeah. a lot of people sort of misunderstand, you know, how machine learning works. You know, um, because I hear a lot of people talking about AI competing with humans and and so forth, and framing it in that in that way. And and ultimately, I think that's fair. But um, to to think about these AI as sort of in the, you know, coming up with these concepts independently, that's actually not what's happening. What's happening is it's combing through all of this human language, stuff that we've written, stuff that we've said, and it's condensing that down to these models in terms of, you know, how language works. And, and uh, you know, when you look at things like um, diagnostics in the medical field, it's looking at all of the work that diagnosticians do have done, you know, radar technicians, uh, um, oncologists, and so forth, that is compressing all of that that human knowledge and experience and finding those patterns, you know, that enable good diagnosis. Um, and in doing so, um, you know, what it does is it condenses a broad range of human activity and behavior. So essentially what you get is sort of a condensed version of all the best human application at that, at that task. Now, it's not the same for language processing and ChatGPT because as we know, language is, it, it has a lot of variability to it. But for tasks like that um you know we we are seeing these machines now perform at better um rates you know in in fields like diagnosis yeah. than than humans and it's not because the machines are better it's just that it's condensed all of the human knowledge into the sort of an actionable of. framework yeah exactly it's like a greatest hits album uh, at your fingertips yeah. you know or or a, a cheat guide you know things that humans have been using for for a long time to get an advantage or get a leg up also useful for drug discovery, useful for translation. Like, you know, the, uh, I get the people who are concerned about the threat. And I think as like Amir Gavi said, when we interviewed him a month ago, uh, he said, most of the concerns boil down to people, people's fear that they're going to be replaced, uh, people's fear that they'll be obsolete. And Brett, my observation there is that's a generational fear. Um, when I talk to younger people, oh. I don't get that impression. People under 30 are embracing these tools and they welcome them or they're indifferent to it, but they'll use them. Um, it's uh, older people who feel like, well, I've accomplished a lot in my life and I've mastered this particular domain. Um, and now it's my time to like basically ride it out, uh, to use my expertise. And they're feeling threatened. They're feeling they might get displaced. The practical reality is that no one yet has lost their job to, to any of these tools. I've heard from some people who say, well, graphic designers or people on Fiverr, you know, that do uh, job work, that they're, they're getting displaced. I don't know if that's actually true or not. 
But in terms of any professional that I've spoken to, the way people are using these tools is as like an accelerator. They're using it like a really smart personal assistant. No, I, I, I look, I, you know, I, you know, I've talked about the four phases of AI integration, you know, and I frame it this way. You know, the first phase is alignment, where we figure out how AI should fit in society, and that's going to continue for some time. Second phase is the advisory phase, where we use AI to augment advice. So this is AI-powered humans or AI-assisted humans. And we do that until such point where the um, the AI models get good enough to eliminate the human from that advice piece or where we can let AIs act on our behalf. So this is the agency phase. Now, we're probably not going to get into this agency phase of AI where we have these AIs you know, autonomously acting, um, you know, on our behalf as examples, you know, till, uh, you know, the early part of next decade. But at that point, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more binary, right? Mm -hmm. In that, um, you know, jobs where today humans still have value because of information asymmetry, that is, they know more about a topic than you do, they're, they're, Though they're the ones at the highest risk from the agency phase because that's really where the AI is going to start to attack. So I don't think right now you can make a case that AI is producing broad technology unemployment, but that certainly won't be the case in the mid-2030s, right? So, um, you know, we've got a period of time to prepare for that. The argument that the market makes and the argument that the you know the, and this this is this is a very good point why the the AI pause didn't make significant progress. It might have ticked a few boxes, but ultimately my concern, and I've expressed it on the show before, is that the core mechanism here as to whether AI is going to replace humans in the workforce is how capitalism itself works. Mm -hmm. is since the 1960s, the overriding economic driver has been increasing productivity. The ultimate tool to increase productivity is to remove humans from the labor force, right, in, in production. Um, and there is nothing in the model of capitalism today that says we should value a human worker over an algorithm. Um, and th that when we look at why the, the AI pause letter didn't produce a wave of rapid regulation, um, you know, and really stop development of AI is because ultimately whether AI is going to be implemented and have an effect on employment is up to the market. It's not up to the government today. Well, it could be. It's a choice, right? And we've been uh, conditioned. Right. It's a policy choice, right? Yeah. yeah. For, for about 50 years, we've been conditioned this idea that government shouldn't intervene in markets. Of course, it does all the time, but it right. does so in ways that preserve the status quo and give companies, private sector companies, free reign. Uh, to make decisions. Now, it's certainly possible to conceive of a government that does actively intervene in in uh, in the private sector and in, in markets. China, EU, yeah, EU. It's exactly. it's also important for people listening to recognize that the market is not society. The market is a right. subset of society, but we tend to run the United States as if the market is the whole of society. There's just a lot of social functions that don't really work in a marketplace, um, and we need to recognize. I think we need to recognize that policy needs to recognize that. Now, this brings up the very the adjacent topic, which you, you teased already, which is strikes. We should probably jump into that after the break. Should we take a little break and then come back and take it up uh, with the, the strikes, labor action? Sure. Yeah, let's take a break. 
You're listening to The Futurist with myself, Brett King, and Rob Tersek. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. All right. Hey, listen, you're back and you're listening to The Futurists with me, Rob Tursik, and my co-host, Brett King, who's coming to us from Moldova. So tell me, what's the weather like in Moldova? Well, it's pretty warm. It's about 29 degrees Celsius today. So, you know, in the 80s. Um, It's funny, though, you know, I've been spending the last few months in Thailand. So um, I, I was outside in Thailand the other day and it was raining and it was um it was down to about um 26 degrees celsius and i was like oh god i need a jacket it's cold you know because yeah. your blood thins out over, over it's time true. So, you get conditioned yeah. to that constant humidity yeah. uh it, that's definitely true um so uh you know while sam altman has been on a so the ceo of open ai has been on a non-stop world tour um, to reach out proactively to governments to talk about regulation. There's a lot of speculation that the kind of regulation he's pushing for is not the kind that'll favor workers or those who are threatened by displacement. Uh, the speculation is that he's looking to create a, a licensing regimen that would essentially entrench the leading AI companies. And we've seen some trends towards that, by right. the way, this last, right. in, the, in the last few months. Um, for instance, just last week, uh, Amazon announced that they're going to invest up to $4 billion in Anthropic, which is a competitor to OpenAI. It was founded by a couple of the team from OpenAI. Uh, it's an alternative approach. They have a thing called constitutional AI, uh, where you can set some values, some reg- you, know, you can actually like, incorporate what we think are human values. Interesting notion. Um, hmm. Amazon's going to make that available to their cloud customers, which makes a good deal of sense. So you're starting to see the emergence then of uh, these little blocks, right? One block is uh, DeepMind and Google. Another block is Microsoft and OpenAI. And another block now is Anthropic and, and Amazon. And these are the big cloud vendors, the big technology companies teaming up with their basically their pet AI shop. And you'll start to see those things integrated. And that suggests the market dominance is already underway. Now, counteracting that, of course, I, yeah, source Well, um, you know, um, I mean, I am um, reminded of... Um, you ever watch Star Trek Next Generation? Yes, that was a yeah, that no. was a heck of a transition there. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying because you know, um, uh, d- data data often referred to his ethical subroutines, right? Right. And um, I ultimately think that we we need something like that. And now the EU has taken sort of a two tier approach to the system. That yeah. there are core ethics, and then there are other behaviours uh, yeah. that can be. But the core ethics are sort of critical elements of regulation. And I think I tend to, um, you know, I think that makes the most sense for now until we can actually sort of encode a regulatory AI that creates the sort of sure, sure, ethical sure, subroutines. But, but you're talking systems. about coding human values. And the big question there we is... We can't even agree on human values. values. Amongst that, that is yeah, a exactly. political debate, my friend. Oh, Holy my cow. Goodness. 
We're never, we're in no position. Maybe we get the Dalai Lama to write the ethics code. I, I don't know. You know, it's, you uh, know what? Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's for the best that the United States cannot regulate its way out of this problem right now that we're so incapable because of gridlock, because maybe. Well, because that allows the EU and others to take the leadership. We saw that with the GDP, uh, GDPR, with the it's data true. regulations. And, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, it, what is happening now around the world, when you look at CBDCs and crypto, when you look at, um, uh, you know, um, data, data protection ordinances and things like that, we are seeing regulation develop globally now because what is happening is regulators have to move quickly. And so instead of reinventing the wheel, they'll take the EU regulation yeah, and incorporate right. that, you know, into their localized regulation. So when yeah. people talk about global government and things like that, the fact is it's already becoming clear that regulation is becoming globalized. 100%. Also, what's the WTO? Like the World Trade Organization is a global government. What WTO can sanction a country if that's not a global Global government. Now, right. countries yeah. opt into that, but countries want to be a part of that because it's about free trade. You know, you may recall when we interviewed Stefan Lindstrom from Finland, he pointed out yep. that the American Minister of the Future, right? That's right. We, he pointed out that the American government has outsourced regulation to the EU. And I think that's a great way to put it. We, we can't yeah, agree on yeah, anything here. Yeah. So we just punt but it. But it's not by intent. Right. It's, it's just default. that. Yeah, it's by default. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Right. But it's yeah. kind of funny. Now, the EU regulation is interesting because they have like identified a couple of critical sectors. Uh, so anything that involves life and death, anything that involves military or national security, there the AI is going to be strictly regulated. But when it comes down to like consumer grade AIs, uh, you know, for consumers to talk to, say like a chat assistant or something, there they're going to have very light regulation. So what they're trying to do is they don't want to overregulate preemptorily. Uh, Americans are concerned. Well, I mean, I think, space. right. But, you know, uh, you know, I think what you'd see in, in America, as as we see with a lot of regulations, is um, ultimately who is going to be writing regulations for AI in the States? Isn't it going to be people like Sam Altman? Uh, he's pushing hard for it, right? And, and right. Can't I mean, that's, his you know, charm look at who, 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 writes, who writes regulation on drugs? The, you know, it's the big pharma. Who writes regulations right. on use of fossil fuels? It's big oil, right? It's like, it's, that's, well, that's the... True. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You get as much you get as much regulation as you pay for in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. So true. Okay, so let's talk about who's not at the table right now. The people who haven't been represented in this conversation at all our workers. Uh, and you've alluded right. to it a couple of times. Of course, you've written about this eloquently in the past. Uh, the notion of technological displacement of workers. And that's a big concern people had. By the way, it's not new. It's been around for 100 years. Actually, you could go all the way back to the Luddites, I suppose. You can say ever since the Industrial Revolution, workers have been concerned. Ned, Ned Ludd. Yeah, concerned about getting displaced, yeah. right? We had this debate in the United States in the 1940s when automation came to factories. Uh, because in the 20s, uh, workers had a great deal of autonomy in the factory. The, the management of the factory barely came into the factories. Um, but then they started bringing in machines that could replace humans. And the workers started to do sabotage at that time as well, where they would start to break the machines in a way that was kind of a re reminiscent of the Luddites. Um, so here we are today, and people are worried about AI. And the people who have been leading the charge, weirdly, I think, but in a really kind of valiant way, is the Writers Guild of America, the WGA. These are the screenwriters in New York and Los yeah. Angeles. And uh, they've been on strike. They were on strike for nearly 150 days. Uh, the strike was just settled yesterday. It's a long time. You know, and it's Bill Maher caved time. and... and um... 
you know, uh, Drew Barrymore caves, you know, to the pressure, you know, they were going to b- bring back their shows. They didn't. That seemed to be a turning point because it's a lot of solidarity, um, it, I think. In, yeah, in, in, yeah. And the, and the Screen Actors Guild has been right alongside protesting. Uh, for those who aren't in Los Angeles or New York every day, there have been strikers surrounding the movie studios and motion picture companies uh, protesting quite lively. Actually, it's kind of a fresh reminder, at least when I was a kid, there were strikes all the time in the 1970s. Yes. yes. We had a very vibrant labor movement. Uh, under President Reagan in the 80s, we kind of broke the spine. Well, so this is, it wasn't just Reagan. I mean, I talk about this in Take My Socialism. It um, was also, of course, uh, the Iron Lady, Margaret yeah, Thatcher in right. the UK that kicked it yeah. off. And, um, you know, if if you look at what happened, the 1970s was this movement, Thatcher and Reagan really attacked the unions and collective bargaining. They said the unions were, you know, holding the rest of the market at, at, at um, you know, hostage. with a gun to their heads and ho- holding them hostage and so forth. But, and, and, you know, essentially Thatcher and Reagan won that battle, you know, and they reduced uh, the, the power of collective bargaining and the trade unions overall. The net effect of that was that, Real wage growth stopped. You know, and if right. you look at real wage growth since the 1980s onwards in the United States, in the UK, and and Australia, where I'm from, you know, real wage growth has been absent. And and there's an argument to be made that the lack of, uh, you know, that the, the legislation that reduced the power of trade unions and collective bargaining is exactly why we haven't had real wage growth in in the in countries like the states. That's correct. I think there's I think there's a lot to that, a lot of merit to that, and of course. Um, there's also an economic incentive for companies to invest in technology, right? And so that's capital investment. They can write that off. Um, and it's, uh, it's what they call um, capital bias technological change, right? Where the more right. you invest in technology, the more returns go to capital and not to labor. So that's going and, to be- And so you know, there's, there's actually hard hard uh, you know metrics on this today mm-hmm. if you look at the the best blue chip companies of the 1960s and 1970s and you look at how you know the the amount of um, profit per employee that was generated and you look at organizations like Apple and Facebook and and um, you know Tesla is not a great example but you know the, these tech companies they are earning 10 times more per employee inflation adjusted than these 1960s or 1970s based companies and that's because there's a lot less employees yep. it's just it's like the world's being vaporized Robert <laughs> well yeah the other point is that those companies Companies can scale to planetary size, right? That previously wasn't possible in the era of physical goods and manufacturing, Um, but now they can. Now there's a lot of labor movements happening. So I think people have been inspired by the Writers Guild. By the way, they won. This is really remarkable because even at the time, while I'm a supporter of the Writers Guild, I thought, well, they're doomed, right? AI is coming. Uh, The movie studios are on the defensive. They're getting attacked by big tech. They are going to have to automate their way out of this problem. But the writers held in there. They got support from other unions, uh, the Teamsters Union, uh, IATSE, which is the theatrical workers, the screen screen actors, even the Directors Guild for a little while was supporting them. And as a result, they won. And they got almost everything they asked for. They got an increase in residual payments or bonuses based on streaming that they didn't have before. They got guarantees about the minimum number of workers who can be hired on a show so that you can't expect a a single writer to do a whole show. Uh, That's a big change. They never had that before. And then perhaps most importantly, they won on the artificial intelligence, which was one of the very, very contentious Mm. points. Um, Now, people get this wrong, so I want to take a second and explain it. 
some people say the Writers Guild was against artificial intelligence. And if you looked at the signs that the protesters had, or the strikers had, sometimes you got that impression, like, you know, they would they were against ChatGPT. The fact is the guild's not against automation. It's not against uh, it's not against AI in any way. They just don't want it to be forced on them, which is very similar, by the way, to the complaint of the Luddites in, in a weird way. It's like a recap of that. Uh, they're like, we'll use AI if we want to use AI, but we don't want someone to force us. And there was one really specific point that was most contentious, and that was, uh, could a producer use something like ChatGPT to generate a script and then hire a member of the Screenwriters Guild, the, the Writers Guild, uh, to do a polish on that. And if that was possible, that would actually, uh, the writer only gets paid 25% for doing a polish versus right. what they get paid for an original script. So that would be a way for them to evade a con contractual obligation. It was like a loophole that could have undercut the, the value of a screenwriter. Um, they fought very hard and they won on that point. So no AI can be used in literary material and you cannot um, use a script. Uh, a, a AI but a screenwriter can use AI to generate yeah, a script. that's exactly right? right. And they're not opposed to, so for instance, there's a topic, a lively discussion right now on whether the studios can use um, use the writing to train an LLM, right? That was another contentious issue. And it looks like the studios are right. going to win on that. Not to replace the writer, but to automate things like the descriptions that go into streaming media services or the description that goes on a box, you know, those uh, the, the, the metadata yep. around the film, sure. I guess. Um, it makes a good deal of sense for that to get automated or to use that to write, you know, promotional copies. Well, you know, um, you know, we're using um, tools like Opus to take, you know, clips from, you know, our show, The Futurists, and create short form video. And it looks at, you know, patterns of listener behavior or, you know, when, when you're watching it on YouTube, looks at um, places that, you know, people highlight and so forth and, and looks at natural cadence of language to choose these segments to automatically generate these short form clips. It's a pretty That's powerful right. tool. I can right. see us continuing to use that. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that you know, where, you know, as as hosts that, or at the guests that, um, you know, we're being compromised. <laughs> no um, one's going to interview you with ChatGPT on this show anytime soon. No, no, no. But but it is it's going to take, you know, work off someone who's maybe doing social. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's the social team that's using these tools, actually, right? Well, I was going to say, in a way, it empowers your social team to reach. There's a diversity of platforms. There's way too many social platforms. So how can one person hope to reach them all? So a small team can be more effective. Uh, now, Spotify is using AI, generative AI to take a podcaster's voice and produce the show in different languages. So it would still be your voice. And they're doing this with the permission of the podcaster. I'd they, be cool with that. Me too. I would love to deliver my show in the Moldovan language, whatever that yeah. might be. For instance, it, well, that mainly audience. Russian and Romanian here, but yeah. Oh, okay. Fair. Great. Good. Let's get it out. Well, you know, the future yeah. is in Russian. Um and other other people are using it for other kinds of translation, uh, automating marketing materials, and so forth. Let's talk about other labor action because, of course, the writers' strike was not the only strike. We've seen uh, attempts to strike against uh, Amazon in their warehouses during the pandemic, and now the uh, auto workers in the United States. Uh, the auto workers have gone on strike, so this is a big deal because United Auto Workers is one of the biggest unions in the country, um, and they are striking. The They're looking for a forty percent pay hike. It's a yeah it, over three years. It's a pretty aggressive demand. Uh, auto companies, you know, they had a tough time during the pandemic, but they're back and they're making money now. So this is the right time to ask for it. Big, biggest There's profits that they've done in in over a decade. Um, you know, so there's that argument. You know, I see a lot of... Um uh, you know, I'll use the terminology that Katie uses, which is corpo apologists, 
right? You know, uh-huh. um, so, you know, on on and Twitter, you know, mainly on Twitter actually, less on LinkedIn, but arguing that, um, you know, that if if these strike striking workers get what they want, it'll be the end of, uh, you know, auto manufacturing in the United States. Right. That argument's that, overblown. That, yeah, that's right. Blonde. Well, yeah. so, you know, I mean, the the there's two very simple counter arguments to that. One is that, you know, German automakers can do that. So, you know, um, it, does that mean that American automakers are grossly inefficient when compared with the with the German automakers? No one would argue that, you know. Yeah. Um, and the other piece of this is that Tesla can do it in the United States, but they can do that with high levels of automation applied. And then they, that's you know, a the really human important skills. point. And, yeah. and this is going to have to be negotiated as part no, of it. No, no, let's, let's talk about yeah. Tesla because they're the important company to watch in this space. So while I think it's reasonable to expect Ford and GM to come to some sort of arrangement with their workers, um, Tesla is an interesting company because it has exactly zero union workers. It is an right. auto company in the United States that doesn't hire any union workers. How do they do it? Well, they move their plants to places where they're aggressively anti-union. You know, there is no one United States when it comes to this sort of thing because there are several red states that are uh, very anti-union. Uh, mm. For instance, uh, South Carolina is a state that welcomes auto manufacturers. Uh, they have been doing a great job. They just landed another plant from Audi uh, in the state of South Carolina. They already have Mercedes-Benz and uh, BMW and Volvo. So they're doing great at attracting uh, European automakers. And part of that is it's a right-to-work state. So the union doesn't have as much power to shut the place down. And so uh, that that diminishes labor's power to bargain. Uh, but what it does mean is jobs are created. Now, the leading proponent of this is Elon Musk and Tesla. Uh, they are st- firmly anti-union. So I think what I would say is that as, you, as workers try to organize and try to extract more of the profit for labor instead of it flowing back to capital, uh, what that does is it creates an incentive for corporations to relocate to other jurisdictions that might be more favorable. Yeah, we'll see that again. It's like a, you know, it's like there's the same thing. I think is going to the same things. I think going to happen with mass automation, right? Is you're going to have jurisdictions that are quite happy to have completely autonomous factory operation, and yeah. and others that will prioritize, you know, human human labor. You know, we called this, uh, you know, in in techno socialism when we did the four different models, we called this the lattice stand scenario, right? Whereas where jurisdictions would seek to ban the implementation or restrict the implementation of artificial intelligence to favor human workers, yeah. the main incentive behind that is essentially that in highly capitalist environments, you know, and and particularly in the sort of environment we have in the United States, if you have to create a social safety net for people who are displaced by technology, that is a bigger problem you know, in, in certain states in the US, then it would be displacing the human workers, you know, from a from a corporate perspective, right? So also um, the money that you pay workers circulates in the local economy, you know. So all those right. workers, machines aren't going to consume. Exactly. No, yeah, no, yeah. All the workers are the same line. They shop in the local grocery store, they use the local dry cleaner, they buy cars in the local dealership and so forth. So the money circulates and that's a great way to keep a community going. Whereas if it's fully automated, the money goes to shareholders um, and it doesn't necessarily stay in the community. You can help out of community that way. So watch this space. We're going to surely come back and talk about more labor policy in the future. We'll be, we'll be talking about it for the next 20 years. So know. Brett, also, it's the 25th anniversary of Google. 
And the Department of Justice has given the Google not one, but two big presents to commemorate the occasion. They're being sued by the Department of Justice for antitrust in two cases right now. One for search, their dominance of search. And then after that, there'll be another case coming on ad, uh, their dominance in ad serving. And I think it's very difficult for anyone to say that Google's not a monopoly since they have something like overwhelmingly 90%. Well, they've already been sued for this in you know the EU jurisdiction and in the and UK the, separately. So the US is, is behind on this. Yeah. Well, yeah, that I guess is the interesting thing. United States uh, policy on monopoly and antitrust has evolved. Uh, a lot of people don't notice this because it's kind of arcane. It's a little like getting into copyright, which is another one of my oh, yeah. pet yeah. topics. That's one of your pet Pet pages, yeah. things that I go into, but, yeah, yeah. but antitrust law in the United States, uh, you know, the laws are about 100 years old. They're from the 1890s, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, they were there designed specifically to break up big trusts that were dominating entire industries. Um, those laws have been kind of dormant in the last 50 years. And that's partly because of the work of the Chicago School of Economists. Uh, they came up with a theory called price theory, also known as consumer welfare the consumer welfare uh, structure of analysis, whereby you say, gee, if there's a monopoly, is it necessarily harming customers? If it's not, the way you would find that is if it's raising its prices and extracting monopoly rent, basically charging a lot for something that it, it needn't charge such a high price for, uh, then that would be considered harmful to consumers. Then there would be monopoly action. This idea was formulated in the 1970s and principally by a guy named um, Robert Bork, uh, who was at once a nominee for the Supreme Court. He's, he's the reason why our Supreme Court nominations are so contentious now. But he was quite an extremist on this uh, in favor of corporations. People were scared about him being on the Supreme Court for that reason. Anyway, he pushed this concept and we've been abiding by it ever since, which is basically if there's no high prices, then consumers aren't being harmed. Therefore, the monopoly is not so bad. We can tolerate it. Uh, the last big antitrust case in the United States was against Microsoft in 1999. So it's been quite a few years. Now, we have a new head of the Federal Trade Commission, a woman named Lena Khan. Six years ago, she was a student at Yale Law School, and she wrote an important paper about Amazon with a new theory of antitrust. And her paper uh, talked about how a company like Amazon or any network business has an opportunity to do something that was previously impossible to do. They can provide services for free. And in doing that, they can restructure entire markets and grow right. to dominance. And of course, right. we know this because we use the free services every single day, right? Free like, delivery you know, yeah, yeah. and so forth, right? Um, and in Amazon's case, they don't really offer a lot of stuff for free, but they do offer low prices. So effectively, they're subsidizing the cost of the goods in order to gain market share. Now, if you looked at all the retailers in the United States, Amazon's a small percentage, about 10% of that. So they're not dominant. But in e-commerce, depending on the way you define the market, they might have a dominating share. And so Lena Khan is now the chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission. And yesterday she filed a major antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. Um, interestingly, though, it's not arguing that there's- Based on these mechanics. Yeah. What she's arguing yeah. in this case, not consumer harm. She's arguing that they've harmed sellers in Amazon marketplace. Well, they what I want to know, what I want to know, dude, is-, is you know, why aren't we doing this for insulin? I know we've had a price of insulin capped, you know, and so forth, but it's effectively free in the rest of the world. You're right. You know, and there are there are still a million Americans that have to ration their insulin. This is 25% of those yes. that have type 1 diabetes in the United States that have to make a decision as to whether they're going to eat and pay the rent or get insulin, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, this... 
this isn't any trust issue. You know, it it's is. not a monopoly. It's, it's 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 um pricing that's agreed on. Right, you know, an oligopoly that sets the price. Right, an oligopoly. This is yeah, and weirdly this is as much of an issue. They you know. do it with the connivance and support of the federal government. They do it with the support of Congress. I know. I know. This it's is crazy. Extraordinary. Um, now, the Biden administration is trying to do something about price, uh, the price of drugs, but it's it's not just insulin, which I agree with you is inhumane yeah, and yeah. taken advantage. But the United States citizens pay more for drugs of every type than any country in the world. In many cases, we, we have twice, oh, twice the OECD average in the United States. We pay States more for health care. We pay much more for health care. Again, it's a very highly consolidated market. We pay more for broadband and we have no choices. In many cases, yeah, we have yeah, choice yeah, yeah. of one. Uh, the broadband service we get is quite poor relative to other parts of the world. We pay twice or sometimes three times as much for mobile yeah, phones. We have, we have Korea, fewer yeah. providers of mobile phones uh, in the United States, mobile phone service, and we pay about twice the price of other countries, sometimes four times the price. So it's a great question, right? The United States was founded by people who were anti-monopoly fiercely anti-monopoly right, right right the fight was about the boston you know the boston tea party was a fight right right the english yeah, yeah, yeah. Tea company, against the english monopolization yeah exactly yeah, against monopolies and yet here we are capitulating to effectively government sanctioned monopolies i find it a great paradox who knows brett uh we live in such a world of interesting times and change i think you get as much government as you pay for in this country and you get as much <laughs> as you can afford yeah, I mean, um, you know, I someone was uh, commenting on a post that I, I'd commented on the other day, and they, you know, they made, um, you know, they made some comment about their constitutional right for, um, you know, for for gun ownership, of course. And I was like, what about a constitutional right for health? Yeah. Um, you know, for a roof yeah. over your head, for clean food, water, access to food, for clean yeah. water, for clean air. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, why would you prioritize guns over those basic things? And yet the U.S. economy has, you know, we're seeing deterioration in those core elements, you know, affordability of housing, affordability of health care, affordability of food. Why, you know, like the figures are coming out that, you know, inflation is not a big deal, but so many people are saying, why is it costing me thirty-two dollars to buy a you know six pack of bananas or whatever it is? Right. That's you know, right. Well, and also that, yeah. your cost, your mortgage has gone up. Your cost of leasing a car—it's insane. Has gone up. Yeah. So that you know, people aren't wrong. Cost I mean, of living is just and and again, the real wage growth is a is a core problem in this. So there are some really. Um, this is look. This is not unique to the United States. There are structural problems, you know, in economies all around the world with this now. Inequality is a growing problem. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the reason inequality is growing is because of the increased application of autom automation, you know, mm -hmm. because it does sort of create this, uh, you know, software or AI, you know, in the future will be an AI landlord class, you know, that own the assets that are automating large portions of the economy. Um, and, uh, you know, unless you're in that segment, then, you know, you, you've got to get by with what, what you can get on um, you know, uh, on on a reduced wage structure, while the cost of living is increasing and increasing, it's um, uh, you know, I just found out a stat. This is going to blow your mind, but um, you know, the the fastest growing category of housing in the United States, um, privately owned housing, is um, privately owned vans. Hmm. Van life, you know, and so yeah. now to buy a van like a Sprinter van that was thirty thousand, these things are selling for a hundred thousand dollars now because of the demand for people wanting to get in a van to live. I mean, 
you know, van life, it sounds romantic, but the the reason people are being pushed into buying a van to live in a van is because the cost of housing is is gone out of their reach. Now, in the 1960s, the average American could buy a home, a four, you know, a, 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 a family of four, the white picket fence home, on average, three times the average annual salary in the United States. Yeah. But in places like where you live and where I lived in New York, it's 19 or 26 times the average salary now. You know? But don't forget, so, in the 1960s, 35% of the American workforce was in a union, in a labor union. Not right, everybody, right. but a big exactly. chunk, right? Exactly. And that, put, yeah, yeah. That, that managed to reinforce every worker's bargaining position. Uh, so by dis- dismantling unions and by uh, accelerating automation, we've managed to degrade labor and thereby the lifestyle and the, and the uh, quality of life for a huge percentage of the population. I'm wondering what the future for this is going to be. We'll definitely cover this topic more in the future. Look, I'll, I'll leave us with this thought because I know we're going to wrap, but um, ultimately, if you if you think about the application of artificial intelligence, um, and this is what I think a lot of people miss. When you look at the the 60s, the 1960s and 1970s, the science fiction movies and so forth that depicted robots in society, you know, uh, Rosie the Robot, you know, et cetera, you know, um, the the... The plan always was for robots to take away menial human labor, you know, housework, uh, you know, working in factories and so forth. So literally for 60 years, you know, technologists have been preparing us that robots are going to take human jobs. That, That has always been the intent of automation for AI and robotics. And so ultimately, if AI is successful, which I see no reason why it won't be, we have to start dealing with um, the fact that human labor is no longer a mechanism for distribution of wealth in society, that we need some other way to do that. Because the less you can employ human laborers in the workforce, the less effective mechanisms you have for distribution of wealth in society. Hmm. So this is, I think, the big problem that's coming. Is that's that a even tough one. If you, yeah, that's even if you can one. maintain human jobs, you're not going to get get paid as much because you right. know the most valuable companies will be highly automated. So that's that is a that is a philosophical change in the way work is uh, relates to society and humanity, and it's a big deal, and it's going to take decades to figure. In a way, out. it's tragic that OpenAI didn't stick with its original mission of being truly open, right? Their idea was an open alternative to the big, big, huge tech companies. Of course, now that's over because they've taken massive investment from Microsoft and they're now part of, they're part of the Microsoft world. So they're part of one of the big platforms in a way. Uh, But it's too bad, right? Because you could imagine a scenario where uh, small companies could compete and could compete by using open tools. Maybe that's still possible because there are other open AI LLMs that are available. Um, But my sense is that those companies will fall behind if this becomes a battle of scale and a battle of service, the companies with the big data centers that are all over the world are going to have a strategic advantage there. 
So in a way, they'll hasten this issue that you're bringing up. Yeah, I think I think there up. are you know I think that the the app economy, what we saw with you know, um, companies being able to you know, startups being able to create value quickly on the app ecosystem, I think there is the same is going to happen for spatial computing and for AI specialization in these areas where yeah. you know there are commercial opportunities. But as you say, the broader frameworks, industrial um, you know uh, level AI and you know conversation. AI built into operating systems and experiences, yeah, that's going to be dominated by these uh, oligopolies, as you say. Well, that is not the world's brightest note to end one of our episodes on. Generally, you're the optimist here. I feel like I'm holding up the optimistic end of the bargain. Brett, it's always a great pleasure <laughs> to see you. Um, now, I owe you a conversation about China because there's a lot of misunderstanding here in the US about what's actually happening on the ground. And since you've been there quite often and you have a good perspective on it, very soon, let's record a show uh, where I can ask you, what's the truth about China? Right, right. Yeah, you know, that'd be good because this is a conversation that I have frequently mm-hmm. online, particularly with Americans, not less so with people in other parts of the world. But, um, you know, um, let's definitely get into that. It's something that I'm passionate about. Super. Well, safe travels to you. I hope it goes well. And I hope you finally get to one time zone and can stay there for a while. Super fun to see you, folks. You've been listening to The Futurists with my co-host, Brett King, and myself, Rob Tursick. And we are very grateful for your listening. Thank you for supporting the show. I want to give a shout out to Kevin Hershon, who's our engineer, and to Elizabeth Severance, our producer, and the whole team at Provoke Media. Uh, thank you all very much for making the show possible. And a big shout out to those fr- fans of the show who've been sharing it on social media and telling their friends about it. We're growing, and that's because of you. We thank you very much for your support. And we will see you soon. In fact, we'll see you in the future. future. Sorry. (laughs) Well, that's it for the Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.